Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Battle for the Big Top is as rollicking, infectious, and enthralling as the subject it covers. With verve and style to spare, Les Standiford spins an unforgettable and addictively readable yarn about the three great showmen of the wildest of all entertainments, the American circus. What a blast. Dennis Lehane is right. What a blast it is. Les is my guest on this edition of The Literary Life. The director of the creative writing program at Florida International University, Les Standiford once again plums the richness of the Gilded Age, giving us a front row seat under the big top where the greatest show on earth is always on display. Les, thank you for being a guest on The Literary Life. Oh, my pleasure. So with this new book that you've written, Battle for the Big Top, which is all about the circus, and you know, we all love circuses, but with the demise of the circus, why is it that we should all still be thinking about P.T. Barnum, James Bailey, and John Ringling? What is their lasting legacy as circuses have kind of gone away? Well, thank you for that question, Mitchell, because I think it's a good one. I started off with... uh, this project thinking it would be entertaining, largely. It would be fun to write about the bearded lady and the alligator man and the elephants and so on. And uh, indeed it was. If people have half as much fun reading this book as I had in writing it, they'll get their money's worth. But uh, as I worked uh, and got deeper and deeper into the material, I became, I came to understand that uh, the circus was important and understanding the importance, uh, understanding the circus uh, uh, and why it was so popular for so long in the country is, is key to understanding who we are as a, as a people. The, you know, over the past hundred years, entertainment platforms have uh, shifted uh, so rapidly. Radio, then uh, the movies, then television, then uh, uh, VHS, and then streaming and uh, cell phones, uh, you know, with the point now where uh entertainment's being beamed right into your hands and while you're driving down the not just into your living room but uh you know uh into your bedroom into your car 
or into your bathroom uh, on, on your cell phone. And all that's taken place, those, those rapid and massive changes in how entertainment's delivered to us for the better part of a century before that, there was only one popular entertainment platform in the country that amounted to anything, and that was the circus. It went to where the people were, seven to 10,000 people uh, in an afternoon or an evening performance would gather together to, to watch that. And this is a day long before professional baseball franchises. Uh, there were theaters that might hold two or 300, 400 people, but uh, there was nothing else like the circus where masses of people uh, came together to be entertained. So paint a picture for us of what a 19th century circus goer would find, you know, when they, when the circus came to town, what was it that they were looking for? And what was the antecedent to that? Well, uh, the circus uh, in its heyday as typified by Barnum and Bailey, the greatest show on earth was a mightily more sophisticated entity than the first circuses that uh, mud shows they were often called that traveled across the the uh, frontier in the wake of the uh, of the advance of, of settlers they they uh, they traveled in horse-drawn wagons on uh, roads that were unpaved uh, the reason they were called mud shows is that those roads would turn to quagmires after the first rain and uh, and getting from uh, one venue to the next overnight mind you you would uh, the circus would only play a given town one night and then it was on to the next place 30 or 40 miles away across uh, terra incognita and uh, these despite the fact that uh, transportation was rudimentary the nature of the entertainment that went on under the tents that these mud shows carried was fascinating hamlin garland uh the uh, 19th century novelist uh, writes in a book called Boy Life uh, on the Prairie of uh, going to the shows after uh, going to the circus that had come to his small town in Indiana after a long week of work in the fields planting or harvesting crops or uh, uh, milking the dairy cows and spoke of it as if he'd uh, as those acts poured into the tent and perform before these people who didn't see anything of pleasure. But once a year would come the circus with these unbelievable costumes, with these never before seen exotic animals, lions and tigers and elephants and giraffes and beautiful ladies dressed up in sequined uh, outfits performing these unbelievable acrobatics uh, on uh, on on the uh, up in the air, walking tight ropes and 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 jumping from from bar to bar, hand to to hand. Uh, well, this was just fascinating. This is beyond the pale. This was, it, in fact, the impossible being made true before your very eyes. And what I came to understand about the, the importance of the circus that we were talking about earlier was that. You know, America was a, a country founded on the notion that anything was possible here. Your previous bounds in the country where you'd lived before 
were unfettered in once you came to the United States. If you worked hard enough and long enough and you cared enough, you could read, uh, transform yourself. Anything was possible. Sky's the limit. The frontier lay beckoning in front of you. And in fact, when you went and spent three hours at the circus watching literally if people do things that were thought to be impossible physically, it was a metaphorical reminder that that's, what, that's why people had come to this country in the first place and why they're still knocking the doors down trying to get in here because of all the countries on earth. This is the place where anything can happen for anyone. And that's what the circus said to you. And, and it also gave rise to that, that myth, uh, mythic notion that if you weren't satisfied with your lot in life in Cambridge, Ohio, or where uh, is, that's where I grew up, or some other uh, small town, if you weren't satisfied with the way things were going, what you could do is run away and join the circus. Right. And as you know, literature is filled with stories in which people did that, right? Where they Absolutely. went on the road, followed a circus, followed their dreams. So, so tell me though, um, what changed? Was it these three guys and their vision that made the circus, that took it from the mud show to the, to the, to the big top? What was well, part it that of, changed actually? Part of Part of the uh, the uh, the mission in the circus was always to put on the biggest and the best show. And once P.T. Barnum uh, got involved, which he had not been involved in the circus before he was 60 years old, mind you, he'd spent uh, most of his life as uh, what you might call a, per a presenter of human oddities, Tom Thumb and the Fiji mermaid. And he had a kind of Ripley's Believe It or Not emporium where amazing things were put on you know weird stuff was put on display uh down in lower manhattan you get a lot of that in in the uh the the showman movie the uh but uh, he hadn't had anything to do with the circus until 1871 and once he teamed up with bailey who came to him and uh two of them got together and and uh, they and barnum said i'll take this out this whole undertaking to another level in terms of size, in terms of array of acts. It, the circus went from one ring entertainment below the, the tent to two and then to three, so that if you're sitting there, you can barely uh, hold your attention on everything that's going on in front of you. Well, that was on purpose in, in Barnum's mind. He wanted sensory overload. He wanted to outdo, make a spectacle that had never been seen before in anywhere and and he succeeded and if he weren't enough then along come the ringling brothers these upstarts from wisconsin who went to a circus once and were so impressed they said well we've got to do that ourselves and by george don't you know that it took them 25 years to to create it but they did and they became the chief competitor for barnum and bailey and eventually outdid them bought up uh, after Barnum and then Bailey's death, there the uh, what uh, Ring Barnum was calling the greatest show on earth. And you had the combined shows, Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey, greatest show on earth. And uh, 
from 1907 uh, to 1930, that was the the pinnacle of circusdom in in the whole world. During that period, how how cutthroat before they merged was the competition? The uh, the the competition and the, some of the shady things that happened were mostly confined to the smaller shows because. Barnum and Bailey and Ringling, once you got to that level, they were earnest in competing with one another, but the shady tricks had kind of fallen by the wayside. For one thing, uh, Bailey was a stickler uh, about uh, upstanding business practices, and so was John Ringling. They thought they could outdo uh, each other simply by bringing in bigger and better acts. But before they came along, it would be nothing for one smaller show to come into town, post its bills, and then uh, the next night have a competing show come in, tear down their uh, billboards and their, uh, their posters and slap up their others. Or the competing, a competing show would come in and bribe a local newspaper to run on flattering editorials uh, about how chintzy the, uh, uh, the competing show was and uh, how you were going to be fleeced out of your money and don't go to their show, go to the other show. And uh, this, uh, this sort of thing went on in the smaller shows all the time. Uh, crooks would, uh, would uh, strike deals with unscrupulous members of a troop and uh, oh even with a uh, they might they might pay off a share a local sheriff to look the other way while they burgled homes while people were under the big top watching watching the show or oh and a lot of laundry used to go missing from clotheslines while people were were uh, diverted watching the the circus and on and on and on lots of stories like that by the uh, uh, in the biggest of the big time, uh, it was more about who can do this better than the other guy. P.T. Barnum also said, when entertaining the public, it's best to have an elephant. So talk about the importance <laughs> of the elephant in the circus. Well, you know, circuses uh, became popular in, on the continent and in the United States before, and circus acts became uh, uh, popular before zoos were widespread. And so uh, given that animals were used in acts, horses and dogs and uh, zebras and giraffes and elephants uh, eventually, it'd be a, a part of uh, an adjunct to the circus coming to town was the circus parade where people got to see these creatures being paraded down Main Street. And then they'd also set up a menagerie tent where for an afternoon and an evening when the elephants or the zebras or whatever it was we're not performing. Kids could go by with their popcorn and just gawk at these creatures, and you know, for ten cents, throw the seal of fish and you know, watch something that had never been seen before, uh, usually uh, uh, because there weren't zoos, because there wasn't TV, wildlife television with Jack Hanna showing you every creature known to mankind on a weekly basis. Uh, you know, that just didn't exist. Yeah, and you talk you talk about how the golden age was up until about 1930 when there was this incredible growth and and the circus was thriving. We all know what happened in 1930 with the coming of the depression. Is that what is that what put a crimp in the circuses at that point? Is that what started? The, oh, people the people. Well, you had 
by that time, you also had radio had become popular. You had movies had become an actual event that people went to in theaters as opposed to, you know, short reels they might see in an arcade. They become actual dramatical, dramatic spectacles that siphoned off the uh, audience. Uh, but the the Great Depression itself, the economic downturn, really didn't do in the circus. People were still willing to pay that 50 cents or a dollar admission to uh, uh, go see what, uh, in 1929, for instance, John Ringling netted, netted profit, his net profit was the equivalent of $100 million in today's money. Uh, so it was still uh, uh, going strong. Uh, some theorized that what really and truly did the circus in was the automobile. By 1930, we had a depression, but we also had 85% uh, of families in the United States had or had access to an automobile. And what this meant was that they could go for what they considered, whatever entertainment they sought, they could hop in the car and go to it. Prior to the, the circus had always come to the people. Circus had followed uh, the population on these muddy roads at first, and then on the railroads that expanded uh, America so rapidly, uh, and then on highways. But as more and more people themselves became mobile, they could pick and choose where uh, they wanted to go and what they wanted to see. And that uh, led to a uh, you know, splintering of entertainment possibilities that really uh, marked the beginning of the end for the circus. And principally because it just cost too much money to take this thing on the road. It was such a complicated show. You had uh, to feed, uh, you had 10, you had a, a, a thousand people working on the show, whom you had to feed, you had to school the children, you had to move them from place to place on a nightly basis. Uh, so you were running a transportation company to a restaurant business and an entertainment uh, business uh, and spending uh, salaries also had uh, skyrocketed from the 20s to, the, uh, in, uh, to after the World War II, where uh, wages were 10 uh, to 20 times what they had been in the 20s. And given that you had such a labor-intensive show, that also uh, put the death knell to the complicated, moving that complicated uh, circus and keeping it going. But then it took another 70 or 80 years until the very last circus that you happened to go to, the last yes, I did. performance. And you, you opened your book so movingly about that in the introduction. Um, so it, it was a long decline. I remember, I remember going to the circus as a kid in Miami on Miami beach circus would come to town and there'd be a, a big march of the elephants and the, the whole entire circus, you know, from the train station over the, over the causeway, over the Biscayne Bay into Miami beach. And I was mesmerized by it for years and years and years. I wasn't aware uh, that it was in the middle of the decline, but yeah. it still brought a lot of thrills to so many of us. So it did take a while, and maybe because of the strength of what it presented, uh, people didn't want to let it die, right? It uh, it did. It, it maintained that uh, that appeal. The Feld family who bought it from the Ringling heirs uh, 
in the mid-1960s loved it. They were under the spell of the circus themselves. And uh, that on that last night that you mentioned, uh, uh, Kenneth Feld came out with his whole family and the children and grandchildren. There were about 70 of them gathered in the ring. It looked like a small high school graduating class out there. And he talked uh, in a very moving way about the labor of love that the Feld family had undertaken for the past 50 years. And he said uh, that uh, it had always been touch and go, but they'd been able to keep it limping along for all that time until 2015, when owing to the mounting pressure from animal activists, they finally let the elephants go uh, out to pasture. And he said that marked the end. Attendance, spotty as it had been at that point, fell directly off a cliff. Without elephants, there just wasn't any audience. And, you know, 100 years before, uh, uh, 125 years before P.T. Barnum had said uttered those words when entertaining the American public it is necessary to have an elephant and his words were clearly prophetic Les talk about tell me uh, a the biggest catastrophe that occurred during the circus and you describe it so well in the book and b give me two or three of the most popular acts over the lifetime of either the Ringling Brothers or the Barnum and Bailey Circus? Well, I wrote, a, I opened the, uh, the uh, book with a recount, recounting of the terrible Hartford Circus Fire of 1944. And uh, fire had always been the bane of the circus because of the straw and the flammable tents that they used. And in the early days, uh, illumination was by candle or kerosene lamp. And uh, there were always terrible problems with fires around circuses. But the worst of no tent had ever caught fire. No one had ever died. No customer had ever died uh, during a circus performance of the Ringling Brothers Circus until 1944 when uh, at the Hartford event, the tent caught fire and more than 500 people uh, died in the, in the calamity. And that could have ended the circus. It's one of the reasons why I brought it up. It could have ended the circus right there. And in fact, City Fathers of Hartford immediately impounded the show, what was left of it, and said, we're going to sell off everything uh, you've got in order to uh, pay the claims that are sure to come rolling in. And uh, John Ringling North, the nephew of, of Ringling, stepped in and said, look, if you take everything we've got and sell it, that'll be the end. You'll get pennies on the dollar and that'll be the end of it. And the people who need to be uh, com uh, compensated won't see anything. Let us go back out on the road. We will earn uh, uh, our keep and we will pay these claims. And, and, and so the city fathers let that happen. And over the next three years, the circus prospered. And in fact, every single claim that was presented to the, uh, on behalf of the victims of that fire uh, were, were paid off. The accident itself may, is, continues to be com commemorated on a yearly basis in Hartford, really living history up, up there. Uh, and I, I use it to, as an example of, well, what might have killed the circus then and there, it still went on uh, uh, 70 years, uh, 75 years after that, 
because I think of what you point out, the there's the unquenchable characteristics, the pleasures that people saw there, despite changing tastes and uh, and all the other pressures and all the all the competition. Now, as to the uh, some of the great acts of of circusdom, I I think everybody remembers the Walendas. Uh, Walendas still perform. Uh, they they travel. They uh, they uh, do exhibitions. They walk across canyons. Carl Walenda in the in the 1970s walked a tightrope across a mile long, uh, a mile wide gorge in in North Carolina. For heaven's sakes, he, he died while he was walking from church steeple to church steeple in in Puerto Rico, doing the same thing. I think everybody remembers uh, the the Walendas for their daring and also for some of their tragic uh, accidents. And the uh, uh, greatest clown, the famous, uh, uh, most famous clown is probably a, a portrait of Weary Willie on 20% of the, of the homes in the United States. Somebody's got a, a copy of that picture of that, that hobo uh, that Emmett Kelly immortalized as as a member of the uh, of the Ringling Circus in the 40s and the and the and the 50s, Clyde Beatty was the fabled lion tamer. His was kind of a macho act, which he said was all show. He said if a, one of those tigers that he worked with really wanted him, what good was a whip and a chair going to do him? He'd be dead in 10 seconds. It was all that was all cooked up to make it look more dangerous than it was. You know, Les, we know you as. I know you, and a lot of people know you as the um, the director of the creative writing program at Florida International University. You started your career as a fiction writer. You worked in film, um, and then you moved into nonfiction. You moved into that whole world of creative nonfiction, of narrative nonfiction. And I think the beauty of Battle for the Big Top is that you have taken all that was successful in your career as a fiction writer and you've brought it to the world of nonfiction. Can you talk a little bit about why you made that transition or what made you think of making that transition? Well, uh, the appeal of it for me is much like the appeal in, in, in the circus. Uh, and I, it's a little complicated to explain you have to remember that unlike movies and streaming, you know, uh, computer-based art, every amazing thing that happens in the circus is real. It's not a magic show. There's no illusion there. When an elephant dances the ballet in the circus, it's an elephant dancing the ballet. It's not Disney uh, with a bunch of animators creating that effect. It really happens. When people do those death-defying leaps and those walks across the tight wires, they're really doing that. When an automobile does a loop-the-loop, -loop, a backflip in the circus, it's a real car doing it, not some kid playing a video game thinking he can defeat invaders with a death ray. Uh, you know, uh, that's that's the difference. In in fiction, uh, you see. You can make up a plot just like somebody who, uh, as long as it's reasonably credible and entertaining, like somebody who 
concoct some sort of video game where a Rambo-like character can wail away and defeat any number of assailants. Where uh, and uh, in nonfiction, I'm tasked or I tasked myself with telling a story that was as compelling as a novel without making anything up by using the stuff of reality. And, you know, somebody else is going to have to be the, the uh, judge of whether or not I'm successful at it. But to me, that becomes the real challenge and, and the fun that I get out of writing nonfiction to try to make it as captivating as a story that I'd made up, only everything's real. And the, the hard part of that, of course, is to go out and do the research and find the material that you need to put that story together. You know, Stuart Anand, Stuart Anand says of this book that uh, Les Standiford understands that to know the American soul, one needs to understand the circus. And Eric Larson writes of this book that um, that the, that these guys that you write about less managed to bring Gilded Age America its most compelling source of entertainment being the circus. Uh, I want to put those two things together. Uh, you've written three books now about the Gilded Age, pretty much. It was um, Last Train to Paradise, which talked about Henry Flagler. Uh, Meet, um, uh, Meet You in Hell, which was about uh, Carnegie and Frick. And now you've written this book, Battle for the Big Top, Barnum, Bailey, and Ringling. So what is it about the Gilded Age that tells us something about the American soul? Well, you know, uh, the Gilded Age has uh, connotations of grandeur, but uh, Samuel Clemens or uh, Mark Twain, who's generally credited with coming up with the concept of the Gilded Age. He, he did not see that as a flattering commentary. Gilded to him was something that had the appearance of the surface uh, uh, look of gold, but underneath might be base metal. And he, what he was talking about, what he was decrying there was the money-grubbing aspect of the Gilded Age, where uh, uh, in, in its ultimate stages, he worried that people were concern not with what was being done, but with the, the material gains that were being made and all the excesses of the nouveau riche and, and so forth and so on. And of course he had a point. Uh, it was Mark Twain after all. But uh, on the other hand, uh, on the other hand, this was also the period when the United States outdistanced itself from every other manufacturing uh, nation in the world. You know, just about everything you can think of, the television, from radio to uh, telegraph to the railroad to steel, uh, you name it. Uh, all these uh, enterprises took shape during the, the Gilded Age. And of course, they produced a lot of wealth. And of course, they produced uh, a lot of uh, excess. Uh, but I think my fascination and a lot of uh, folks who look back ask uh, are interested in the Gilded Age because they wonder what was it you know what 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 coalition of forces uh, conspired to make all that happen during that that period 
in the United States, and what can we learn uh, from from that? People still hark back to that and say, oh my heaven's sakes, remember those days when those things happened and men like Carnegie came along and and Rockefeller and uh, Flagler and and uh, and Barnum and Bailey. Uh, I to come back to them for a moment. They weren't making money. They were astounding people. They were giving people something that they'd never seen before. They were motivated to do things in the entertainment world that had never been done before, to raise amazement to untold heights because they thought it was just good, a good thing. Beautifully said, Les. Les, this has been amazing. Thank you for being a guest on the the Literary Life. I would love, I would love it if you could maybe read a little something that you might have that would give us a flavor of the book, Battle for the Big Top. Let's see if uh, I can come up with, here's, here's a little story about uh, Ringling. Uh, in his later years, uh, when he was living uh, in retirement at, at Cotizan, this magnificent home, a little bit of Sunset Boulevard uh, overtones here because he wasn't making any money uh, at, at this point. He was on hard times, but he, uh, his character uh, had not diminished. Uh, and this uh, Richard North says uh, of his uncle, he spent the remainder of his days at Cotizan uh, where North came following his graduation from Yale to serve, to serve his beloved uncle as in his words, business agent, chauffeur, handyman, and sometimes cook. And while the image of an ambitious young man shut up in a great empty fading mansion with an elderly invalid who was facing ruin might conjure grim images straight from Sunset Boulevard, North insists that such was not the case. Through all, Ringling retained the uncanny ability to shut away thoughts of monetary peril and deteriorating health and comported himself as North uh, puts it, quote, as though the sap of youth were boiling through his veins and the money were rolling in. One evening during dinner, North went to answer a pounding at the mansion's front door where he found a U.S. Marshal demanding to see Mr. Ringling. North was experienced enough by this point to realize that here was another court summons about to be served. I'm afraid he's not in, North told the marshal. At about the same time came Ringling's voice echoing down the hallway, demanding that the nurse bring more wine to the table. Well, I'm afraid he is, said the marshal. You tell him I'm not going anywhere. When North returned to the table to advise Ringling of the situation, Ringling waved a hand. Very well, tell him to wait. With North back in his seat, Ringling continued a story he'd begun before the interruption, following it up with several more all the way through dessert, coffee, and leisurely dig uh, digestives. When the ceremony of dinner had finally come to an end, Ringling gave a nod toward the great entry hall. To give me a hand, we'll go see about this fellow, he said. They found the marshal in the vast hall with hat in hand, looking a bit daunted by the splendor surrounding him. Any lingering taste of his bluster flittering away when Ringling greeted him as expansively as a duke welcoming his local magistrate, full of apology for having kept the man waiting. Following another story or two and a pointing out of this artifact and that in the grand room, Ringling, ultim Ringling ultimately accepted the papers from the marshal, who by that time seemed almost apologetic for his errand. 
Ringling ushered the man out into the night with a hearty farewell, closed the door behind him, and turned to tuck the papers away in his coat with a wink at his nephew. Whatever was written on those papers, North understood, the eyes of John Ringling were unlikely ever to fall upon it. Oh, my guest on The Literary Life is Les Standiford, and the book is Battle for the Big Top, P.T. Barnum, James Bailey, John Ringling, and the death-defying saga of the American circus. Les, thank you very, very much. Well, thank you for having me. I love to talk about the circus.